Hello listeners, welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Today we're going to talk about Camus' first novel, which I spent way too much time thinking about at the beginning of the PhD I didn't finish. It's one of the most amazing books ever written, I think, and we'll be exploring it today with a very special guest. Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. Sitting beside me in the real studio is a not so well Tim Whiffen. <laughs> Thank you for having me. a go. <laughs> <laughs> Say that again, man, Sorry. I cut you off. Thank you for having me. It was a fake cough. It was a fake cough. Yeah, it was really quite half-assed really. I wasn't overly impressed. It was a lack of commitment, no tonsils, <laughs> flu, no adenoids exited his head. Well, you, there's, a, there's, a, there's a raspiness and, and thinness to my voice and I'm sure the listeners are really kind of missing the genuine thickness. The, the, the thickness? <laughs> yeah. I would say the depth. The depth. Because who wants thickness because that can be taken the wrong way. Like no one would ever say that you know, Tim is thick. Some of you who follow us on Facebook, and if you don't follow us on Facebook, please do follow us on Facebook. And also, while you're busy clicking things, please go and write us a review wherever you can do that, because it really helps to get us higher in the ratings and to get shared more, which is just generally good for us to be able to keep doing this. A few months ago, I got invited to be on a podcast called The Unforgiving 60, which is an excellent podcast done by two ex-SAS soldiers, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Their tagline for the podcast is two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. So they have huge amounts of professional experience within special operations. Then the experience of giving themselves a whole other batch of training through MBA programs and now being out in the corporate advisory world, really helping companies to deal with complex situations and change. If you're not listening to them yet, please go and listen. After the first episode I did with Ben and Tim, I got an email from a lovely guy called Luke who had all these interesting things to say and cool questions. And then we chatted on the phone and then we had a beer. And then I decided Luke should be on the podcast. So I told Luke to pick a book and Luke has picked Camus' first novel, which is a very brave thing to do, but he's a very brave man, so that's fine. So brave Luke, welcome to Blind Insights. Thank you very much for having me. He's it come w- prepared with notes. Oh, you, you never get criticised for being too prepared. I think it only, goes, it only goes pear-shaped when you... Uh, yep. You don't need to use your notes, but if you have them, you won't need them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, no doubt I am going to need them. <laughs> it, was, it, was an interest, it was an interesting book. And the first read, certainly, I was unsure about it. As you should be, because Camus wrote it and The Outsider or Stranger, depending on which name you want, at the same time, gave them both to the publisher. The publisher understood The Stranger, but didn't understand A Happy Death. So A Happy Death literally disappeared until 10 years after Camus' death. So all the initial literature on Camus in the 1950s and 60s, you know, particularly in the 10 years after his death, all talks about The Stranger out of context because Patrice is the central character of both novels. So in a sense, this huge bundle of literature on Camus is missing half of his original thought. And this is the other half, I'm yep. guessing. And the more important half, in my opinion, because whereas The Stranger is about how not to fight back against the absurdity of the world, A Happy Death is all about 
I want my life to mean something, damn it. And I'm going to fight back against the absurdity. I think for me, reading it the first time, we spoke last week and I said that I, I didn't know even know whether I enjoyed it or not. No, it's hard to know the first time. Yeah, because to be honest, Patrice is a bit of a dick. Well, yes. On first reading, at least. Well, he's, he's a dick on the 10th reading because I've never read it about 10 times. <laughs> yeah. He never stops being a dick. He just becomes a more complex dick. Yeah, probably I haven't read a book that was, I suppose, like that before. I mean, when I was I read, I read Harry Potter, things with a, a traditional hero's journey, yep. I suppose, to go through. And I was looking for, I suppose I was looking for that initially and that never came, it never came along. Like he, I mean, he started off with nothing, with some sort of crisis yeah. early on. I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. It will and resolve now he's the going, crisis. And now the crisis is going to resolve. He's going to get what he wants. It's going to be taken away from him. And then he's going to have his revelation and he's going to end up winning in the end. And I was reading along and I'm going, well, no, this isn't, this isn't going like I thought it was. He's just a dick and he's not getting his comeuppance at all. Yeah, <laughs> and he, but simultaneously, it's a, it's a fascinating book, listeners, to fill in one of the most important plot bits, and it's what grabbed Luke about it when we were talking about it yeah. over a beer, and that is that Patrice is living a, just a nothing life. He's going to work. He doesn't really enjoy it. He's spending time with his friends. He doesn't really enjoy it. He's spending time with his girlfriend. He doesn't really enjoy it. And it's because everything in his world is routine. And through a series of coincidences, he's introduced to a guy who has made a huge amount of money and then has been horribly injured in an accident and doesn't want to be alive but doesn't have the guts to kill himself. And this guy called Zagras makes the deal with Patrice. You put the gun to my head and pull the trigger so I'm out of here and you can have all my money and you can have a go at living a real life. So Zagras's little speech about all that really matters is time and the only thing that can buy you time is money. That's a big profound idea. And that's probably initially was what I probably revolted against first. I was like, well, hang on a second, you don't need you don't need money to be to be happy. But as I probably explored that idea a little bit more, I know and again I'm no intellectual academic, so I, what I do is I read parts of studies and then butcher them when I talk to people about it. But I know there was, I'm pretty sure there was a study done where they, they came up with what was the amount of money you needed to be happy. And I think it worked out to be about $70,000 Australian a year. And that's enough for you to be able to pay your mortgage and then cover off on all of all of your bills and all that sort of stuff. There's probably a little bit of status because you look around and you go, okay, well, I'm about where everyone else is. But I guess more importantly, it buys you recreational time. Well, time buys you to go time. And, yeah, yeah, to go and explore and do the things that you're passionate about as opposed to some people that work, work in two, three jobs. And they are stuck in that thing that Camus talks about where, and I know we might jump, I'm probably jumping to another thing that he wrote, the myth of, Sisyphus, but there's a, there's a part in there where he says people, they wake up, they eat, they get on the tram, they go to work, they walk for, work four hours, they eat, they work four hours, they get on the tram, they go home, they eat and they sleep and then that's it day in, day out. And that, I guess, would be 70 years. You're not, you're not going to be happy. Well, you may not be. The problem is Patrice doesn't want to find meaning in anything he's doing. So in the, the early part of the novel, you look, he's got the friend he runs to jump on the truck with and have lunch with, who clearly enjoys his company. Mm. Most of the people in the cafe smile and say hi when they walk in. So he clearly, when he wants to be, can be a sociable person who people care about. So there's an active choice in him early in the book to not 
connect with people and to undervalue social connection. So it's really interesting. Once he kills Zagreus and he does the thing of you know settling all his affairs and going to Europe and ending up in Prague looking at all the amazing galleries and art and buildings as if just looking at beauty and history will somehow give life meaning. And it fails. It freaks him out. And he flees back to Algiers and shares a house with three friends from uni where most of the time he's either reading a book or laying in the sun. Like this mm. dude would have ended up basically copper brown in colour and the, you know, the sort of texture of old leather and the amount of sun he laid in. But this is the point. He ends up happy again when there's people. Yeah. So the irony of the book is time and time again in the book, when people let him be him and he lets them be them, he ends up happy for a while. And then he gets this manic idea in his head, life's got to have more meaning, I've got to push, I've got to work out what the great meaning is. And every time he goes and tries to find the great meaning or the purpose of his life, he ends up making himself miserable again. All the time he talk, keeps talking about this solitude that he has to endure yeah. and he keeps thinking that I suppose that happiness is going to be in that solitude. And mm. as you said, he finds that once and once again. And I don't know if I want to ruin the ending for people because for me the ending was the best part. The last 10, 15 pages yep. for me was incredible. Just having someone talking about wanting to be so lucid at their moment of death or whatever at the end. That last 15 pages was amazing. Yeah, and when you figure that Camus as a very young man had tuberculosis, so he knew what it was like to barely be able to suck a breath in and to not know if he was going to live. So it's part of what makes that last 15 pages, as Patrice is dying, so powerful, is the few times Camus wrote about the experience of having tuberculosis informed how he wrote about Patrice's death. So as Patrice is dying, he's got his wife Lucienne on one side and his friend Bernard the doctor on the other. Yeah. Looking at a last sunrise, choking down ampules of adrenaline to stay alive and seeing Zagreus's face in a cloud smiling down at him. Yeah. A happy death for Patrice is realising, I actually love being alive and I would rather stick around another couple of minutes. And it's no fear of death. He's not afraid at all. What he's actually realised is he likes being alive. Yeah. And that's a big thing for Patrice because Patrice is a dick, yeah. which is not oh. the best philosophical term, but it's what he is. <laughs> no, <laughs> mistreated just about every girlfriend he had in the entire book. Yep. Spoke about them abhorrently as well. You can see the well. year it's written, 1936 or 37. Oh, yeah. <laughs> unbelievable. If my wife <laughs> wouldn't stand for that yeah. at all. I mean, to say I think he, he married... Lucien, Lucien. Yep. and then said to her, well, I'm, no, I'm going to go and buy this house in a town a couple, of, a couple of hours away, but you stay here and just come and visit me when I send for you. Yeah. Absurd. It's a totally different one. Now, the interesting thing too is a lot of people don't pick up on this is he deliberately buys the little house right near some amazing Roman ruins on the Algerian coast. Mm -hmm. So that's what it's at the end of that little peninsula. So it's another thing of Camus in a sense predicting what he's going to write about later in The Myth of Sisyphus. And that is, here's this Dumbo, you know, Patrice, going, what's life all about? Yeah. When down at the end of the peninsula are these amazing ruins from the Roman Empire where Rome have ruled this world, you know, well, ruled the, the Mediterranean for at least 600 years. So something that can shape 
an entire continent, start shaping a second continent, can go on so long that whole families, communities, civilizations, all they know is existing inside the Roman Empire. And even that can just be reduced to rubble at the end of a peninsula that a self-absorbed twit walks through and doesn't notice. It's quite remarkable. So Camus already putting in, like Patrice, wake up, look at the world. The world is full of all these remarkable signs of what humans can do when they decide they're going to define how the world is. There's no meaning defined in the world. You have to decide what you're going to make your life mean and be defiant enough to do what you believe is meaningful. And that's what I got from the book the second time that I read it. And I think my advice for anyone that's going to read this, read or would like to read or probably I haven't read any of his other works, but go and read The Myth of Sisyphus first mm. because that that lays out basically his – I mean, he didn't want to – he didn't like being called a philosopher, did he? He was, no. you know, I was a writer, but yeah. let's be honest. You're, you're a philosopher. You've come up with some sort of philosophy, so we'll call, I'll call him a philosopher. But read that first because I got so much more from the book the second time round, having that sort of framework to lay the book over. Yeah, because suddenly the absurd makes sense. And if you read A Happy Death, understanding what the absurd is. And the absurd is, okay, there's lots of pages to try and explain what the absurd is, but we'll use a simple analogy. Luke, what's your favourite savoury food? Pizza. We'll go with pizza. All right. What's your favourite sweet food? Jars of Nutella. Right. Two things independently. Awesome. Mm. What would happen if we put the Nutella on the savoury pizza? Mm. (laughs) That's the absurd. It's Mm. that things on their own make some sense. But when you put them together, they don't fit. And really the myth of Sisyphus is about the fact that the world and humans together are what is absurd. The world in itself is just the world. Everything happens, everything goes on. It's humans who go, hang on, I want my life to be like this. Why won't the world bend? Yeah. Why doesn't the world care about me? Oh shit, the world does care about me. What's it doing to me? I didn't want to do that. So a human can never really make peace with who they want to be, what they want to do, and the fact that the world does its own thing. Unless you realise that the real power you have is to go, I believe in this, and I'm going to do it anyway. And if the world's difficult, well, I'll do it anyway. If the world's supportive of it, I'll go, well, that made today a bit easier. But I know the world's not on my side because the world doesn't take sides. The world just is and it's a complex and difficult place to be a human in. So once you get that, Patrice getting along with people and then jumping back into solitude, it sort of makes sense why he's struggling because he keeps thinking the answer is in himself somehow, in solitude, when in reality, when he goes fishing with Perez and just goes fishing, when he does the rounds with Bernard, when he helps organise the festival in the village, when he lives in the house above Algiers with his friends from uni, and he just lives the situation he's in the way he wants without demanding much of the world, but at the same token, achieving what he wants and doing the things he values, it works. It's when he looks for more meaning in himself or the world and tries to put the two together that he really ends up in a mess. Yeah, and towards the end of the book he starts to, I suppose, piece some of those things together where there are some lines in there where he talks about a silent world. Yeah. So it's, a, it's obviously a world that he's asking for some sort of meaning and I think people do that all the time and it's unsettling to think that, well, for some people, and, and maybe there are 
some self-helpy schools of thought that that have got a lot to answer for when they say that you know there is purpose in the world and all that sort of stuff and i think you in a conversation we had talked about someone that wears a smile and a grimace at the same time yeah that i thought that was in the myth of sisyphus it's actually in the rebel so whereas the myth of sisyphus is why not to suicide the rebel is Camus questioning is it ever legitimate to murder someone for the sake of making a better world so it's the other really important book. It's probably easier to read than The Myth of Sisyphus because you don't have to get your head around the absurd. You only have to think about to make a better world, to get rid of someone like Hitler, to get rid of someone like Stalin. Yeah. Would we ever make it permissible to kill? Which is nothing like a, nothing like a small question. No, no. <laughs> yeah. So all these books you know, can be a head trip to read and in The Rebel that's where he makes the point he revisits the absurd and makes the point that when you look around occasionally and you see someone and it's sort of a smile and sort of a grimace and you realise they're seeing the world the same way you are going it's awesome to be alive but bloody hell it's difficult at times yeah there was a line I think there's a line in the book towards the end of it where he's talking to Bernard and Bernard says to him, to think the way you do, you have to either be a man who lives on tremendous despair or tremendous hope. And Patrice replies to him, or both perhaps. Mm. And I sort of feel like it's at that point that he's sort of saying that, yeah, you know, you have to have the both. There mm. is, yes, there is no meaning. But I kind of feel like that if there was meaning in the world, if there was some sort of inherent meaning in living and they said it was whatever, you're not really free then, are you? Because you're living someone else. You're living a meaning that something else is defined for you. Mm. And as scary as it is to say that, well, there is no meaning in life, well, no inherent meaning in life, it gives you a blank canvas to go and apply your own meaning to it. And we're not free in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Like we need sleep, we need food, we need water. But we are free to choose, once we meet those basic needs, how we're going to live in the world, treat people, and what we're going to do with our time. Yeah, it gives you the scope to not judge your life by anyone else's standards Mm. because realistically if you want to make your own meaning you can make it as diverse divergent as you as you so wish i guess really Mm. Mm. and the only thing that will come back and get you as becomes clear with patrice and a happy death is if you don't recognize that for the vast majority of us social connection is critically important Mm. i interpreted it i guess slightly differently not so much in a search for meaning, but a search for happiness, which we all kind of know is, we've talked about on the podcast before, as being kind of pointless, right? Like, you shouldn't go out and seek happiness because you're, you're destined never to find it in some sense. Well, the minute you look for happy, normally you derail it. True. That's what most people seem to do. And Patrice is the perfect example. Mm. Living in the house above Algiers with friends from uni, he's very happy. Mm. Then he meets Lucienne and gets married. He's very happy. And then Dopey moves to the countryside. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we talk about Camus as a writer, and I, I like kind of saying it like that, even though I think when he, when he wrote The Myth of Sisyphus... The Myth of Sisyphus, which yeah, is never easy to I'm say. I'm never going to say that. He was talking about suiciding physically, but also philosophically was the, the main point. Yeah, he makes the point in the book that, okay, plenty of people have talked about you know, death of a philosophical position, and he said, that has been done. So I'm going to ask the question more deeply, and that is, why to live? Mm. You know, he, he wanted, again, he's always about getting to the core of things, mm. which, you know, you, again, if you look at the period he lived in, he's someone who goes off to France 
and ends up being one of the most important people publishing the major resistance newspaper throughout World War II, spending nearly the whole war hiding from the Germans in cellars. Mm. Now, damp cellars is not such a great place to be with tuberculosis. So the, the courage of his convictions that you know, a world without Nazis is a better world and I'm not going to be a good fighter, but with my ability with words, I'm going to be the right person to be writing the editorial mm. and producing the newspaper. I don't know the history of this with any certainty, but I like to think that what he wrote established a kind of archetype for stories because how many movies or or books or kind of modern stories do you see where, for instance, Little Miss Sunshine would be one. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the film. Mm. Um, yeah. But the uh, archetypes of stories where you have usually especially men and I don't know whether that's just because of Hollywood or whatever, but will go out and seek something more for their life, um, taking for granted what they already had, and then come back to the end of the film where they realise that they should have just been happy with what they had. Yeah, it's a very powerful allegory. But really, this is the interesting thing with how Camus sets a happy death up. To have killed Zagreus, there is no going back. Mm. Mm, He's altered life in the most remarkable form by taking life. I felt he was almost a bit almost sociopathic, though, through it yeah. as well. Like, oh, absolutely. Like, he, in the book it says he kills him and then goes home and goes to bed. Yeah. And then yeah. eats, like, sausages or something like mm. that. Yeah. But I think we, we spoke about a while ago about some a highly functioning sociopath yeah, who, goes, yeah. who goes out into the world and, and writes their own rules, I suppose. And, and I think he does that throughout, like... You'd read him and go, okay, and being a, he's, he's a dick, but he's almost written his own rules that he wants to live by, and he sort of says, well, to hell with the rest. This is what's going to make me happy. But there are, there are consequences to that as well, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you're going to do that, if you are going to if you are going to throw the the baby out with the bathwater, mm-hmm. it's fine to do that. But there are consequences for doing that as well. So you've got to be good with that too. See, in a sense, killing. Zagreus, he hoped that by doing that, with having money and time, his life would have meaning. He didn't seem to calculate that he would forever see Zagreus's face every time he was failing at making his life meaningful no. or worthwhile. There's no such thing as a free lunch, is there? No, and that, in that, that in a sense, is the, just the arrogance of him, mm. that it's all just about him and that there's no real flow on effect. So later in the book, you know, when he... You know, goes back to Algiers and meets Marth, his girlfriend, from the beginning of the book again. And despite the fact he's been awful to her, she is remarkably kind to him. Mm. And it really, that's the first time he ever realises, it seems in the book, that there are consequences to his ego and his arrogance. And he's ashamed of himself. And you go, ooh, that's a new experience for this character. Mm. Mm. You know, to have to realise he's done harm to someone who was very kind to him and did far more for him than he ever did for her. So the funny thing is, you can tell in a sense it's an early novel because there's so many things that are really important that Camus then doesn't double down on and explore further the which he does all in all of his later novels. Yeah, because it's, it's not a long book either. It's, it's what, 100 and mm. something pages? 112 or 119. It's, it's, it's a pamphlet, small. if anything. Reading, yeah. I found, was uh, an hour long. Yeah. 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 Um, and it does, it does jump like it... It jumps around suddenly and all of a sudden a character is introduced out of nowhere yeah. and then the character just disappears randomly as well. And even like early on, I think he talks about the the three children. Yeah. First read, I'm like, well, these are his kids. Yeah. But 
then later on there's he's walking around in the nude with one I'm going, okay well obviously these aren't his these aren't his children anymore yeah, I don't know whether that's something that was written in French and then he gets translated yeah, the translation might have been the problem or because mm. again he was the male of the group and the one that had to quit uni to go back and look after his mum he said well I've had to make the grown up position so it would have been part of his whole pity party you know that they got to continue with uni and he didn't mm. again even the the arrogance in him when he goes to the cinema early in the book with Marv oh. and his ego that he likes the fact guys are looking at Marv until he realises he doesn't like the foot guys are looking at Marv because yeah. she may have slept with them. Yeah. So it's like, dude, you can't have it both ways. No. I either be very happy that she's very attractive or just shut up. To write the character, it's sort of tapping back into a lot of late 19th century Russian literature where you know, particularly in the famous play, The Cherry Orchard, where there's not a nice character in the whole play. And every time it's done in English in Australia, the director will pick which character is actually meant to be the nice character you care about. But the reality is none of the characters are likeable. And Patrice is one of those characters. He's not likeable, but you can learn stuff from him. The funny thing in the book is it's the smaller characters that are likeable. Yeah. Like Marl is likeable. Bernard is likeable. Mm. Perez the fisherman just goes fishing. That's quite likeable. I want to go fishing with him. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a beautiful coastline to fish off. So the irony is these people whose lives actually fit the mundane life that Patrice fled are the ones who seem to have the most under control. Yeah, They don't have deep questions either because they've worked out the answers or they just don't feel the need to ask. They're not perturbed by the world. Hold on, but then, so what do we do for the people who feel like that outsider? I know I'm kind of jumping the gun. That's the next, uh, or one of the translations of the next book that this is, yeah. uh, pr- this proceeds, which I have just learned from you. I didn't actually think about this, but that uh, the outsider, what's the other translation? The Stranger? Oh, the Stranger, which the is stranger. actually closer to the right now. Oh, apologies, I thought it was the other way around. No, no, the stra- look, it's the Strange in French, which is not really okay. the outsider or the Stranger, but... Patrice in both books is strange yeah. and as a consequence of being strange he's an outsider. Right, right, right. So one describes what he's like, the other is, well, he's an outsider to society. Yeah. Well, it's because he's strange that he's an outsider. So yeah. you sort of need both names in it. It's interesting. Um, but that book establishes him as a dick without you necessarily going over his thought processes or, or going through the, the actual actions of his ego. Mm. It starts off with him saying, um, my mother died yesterday or maybe it was the day before. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Once again, Patrice is self-absorbed to the end. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think the point I'm trying to get, I'm not trying to say that Bernard is very differently in a happy death conscious. You know, the comments made that he's been a doctor out in Indochina, so, out, you know, out in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and come back to live this quiet life after and quite haunted by it, but can make new friends, can look after the village, can connect with people. Perez the fisherman is an old fisherman missing half an arm who still makes friends with the new young guy in the village. You know, the three young women he shares the house in Algiers with all have friends, a social life, talk, interact, engage, work, and they're all conscious, they're all lucid. Mm. They all know what they value in life and don't... They're all seeking and searching for the life they want, but they don't need to twist themselves out of shape to gain increased consciousness. But is that because they go through the process of feeling like an outsider and then come to, let's say, a more fruitful conclusion? I don't know. This is where it's such an incomplete novel. 
because the I guess my concern is that I think that going through a feeling of being an outsider or being someone that is disconnected from the world is just is pretty much part of coming mm. of age. It is, but most of these people seem to come back and find a way to fit in the world, whereas Patrice just actively keeps going out into space. Mm. But there are there are some people though that and they're those free spirits in life that will dance through life like an in like a, a leaf in the wind and never once ask that question what is the meaning of life or whatever mm. or at least not come to the conclusion that there is no mm. meaning and I think you can't put that genie back in the bottle once no, once, once you you've ask. asked that question oh, yeah. Yeah. You, your eyes are open it's like taking the it's like taking the red pill in the matrix or was it the red or the blue pill in the it's matrix the red pill. it was the yeah. red pill once yeah. you take that red pill that's it you're out yeah you've got consciousness and that's where sort of Patrice's comment to Bernard about both hope and despair is so critical because you can't have either and be conscious on their own if you know, all you've got is despair you're going to be overwhelmed and it will suck your consciousness down if all you've got is hope you won't really see what the world is it's in having the two and recognizing you shouldn't ever be all one or the other for extended periods of time because both are going to distort your perception of the world and your own consciousness mm. that it's in the balance of recognizing even if you're having an awesome day and your hope is high you remember there's bad days and don't get carried away today. Like enjoy it, but don't see things that aren't there. And on the days where you're down, remember, well, today's today, but today doesn't have to be tomorrow. It's, there's, that, there's that saying that people get tattooed on themselves all the time, this too shall pass or whatever. Yeah. And I do like it, but I like it in the context of the full story where the king wanted something that would make him happy when he's sad and sad when he was happy. And a lot of people only apply that this too shall pass on the bad bits. On the bad bits but yeah. it's having that understanding that even at your even at your highest point, it's gonna to come to an end at some point. You're gonna be sad again. Mm. So don't follow it don't follow it too far. And I think we spoke about the, the Roman emperors that would come back after triumphing for their their greatest victory and how they would have the 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 slave or whoever next to him saying to him, "Well, you two, you two will die. This is gonna, mm. this is gonna come to an end." Mm. And I think you need to have that sobering because if you do keep following, keep following it up and up and up. Eventually, when the rug gets pulled out from underneath you, the the fall is so so much harder. Mm. See, in a sense, Zagreus is an interesting character. You're know, having lost his legs in a car crash, and then decided, "I can't have a meaning life with all this money because my legs are gone." In a sense, he's as twisted out of shape as Patrice. Yeah, I didn't get that either. For me, that was sort of a bit of a a bit of a cop out as well. It's like, well, mm. you've just gone well because I can't walk. I can't have I can't have a meaningful life. Like he's got all the resources in the to world to do all sorts of things it was and just, have the help to do them. It was just a bit cowardly in the end. Mm. So and, we have two cowards. Yeah, Patrice wouldn't take a risk without having money, and Zagreus wouldn't take the risk of seeing what he could do with money. And the two finding each other means Patrice got the time and the money but didn't get the benefit of the double insight. So is it just the case that Patrice felt a connectedness to Zagoras that he hadn't with anyone else and therefore when Zagoras was it just led him on the wrong path because it was someone that he connected to yeah. and therefore he just copied effectively? In a sense, it's basically the closest it gets in the book of you know, looking in the mirror and seeing yourself. Yeah. Someone who wants to deny life because it is an ideal. So, well, isn't that ironic, though, that then the connectedness led him down the wrong path? Yeah. Is my question, yeah. 
Because that's the thing, like, you know, when they're sitting and they're talking, I can imagine for Camus writing that first bit of the book, how am I going to set up Patrice killing Zagras? Mm. What a weird thing to have to write. Mm. And what a weird thing to have to assume. Now, again, we look at Camus. Could have been an amazing soccer player until the tuberculosis. <laughs> Despite that, and that would have been the best way out of poverty to make a bag of money quick mm. and have more freedom fast. Instead, the TB happened. He'd thankfully got very good marks at school so he could get a full scholarship to university. That opened up the door to become a journalist. So the doors kept opening, but not in the, the fast, all within, the, say, 10 years of becoming an adult way that he was expecting. But he himself found a way to have a completely different life than he initially expected he would have. So how is it that he came up with these incredibly narrowly defined characters? That's a fantastic plot idea to explore, you know, explore the absurd. But you know, th- these two critical characters to the book are both so messed up compared to so many other characters in the book. So to tie it back to the, the myth of Sisyphus, was the tuberculosis Camus rock? Basically, that's I that's reckon. that's what yeah. you've got. You've been condemned to this for the rest of your life. So, deal. Are you going to push it, push that rock up the rest of the up the mountain for the rest of your life with your bottom lip dragging along the ground, or are you going to be like Sisyphus in in the book? And as it rolls down, shoulders back, and yep. you choose to walk down triumphantly and push it back up the hill again, and you're choosing, yep, you're cho- choosing that for yourself. Yeah, you choose. Well, the world did this but I can be defiant about what the consequences of that action are. And that's his antidote to the absurd, is that revolt yeah, against... Yeah, his defiance, yep. Is it, is, what, what, which is the translation? Is it, is it one must imagine Sisyphus happy or one, one must imagine Sisyphus smiling? Happy. Ooh. Happy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that's the thing, again, in French, happy is not as hard to define as it is in English. You know, happy in French, and I can't remember what the word in French is, but it is more a combination of flourish and happy together. Mm. It's a deeper word with deeper meaning than happy is in English. Well, I, that to me explains abs- the the absurdity. I get more, I think that, that one sentence, those five words is so beladen with meaning. Yeah. That to me as a, as a concept explained absurdity to me, absurdity to me I think. I knew it before I read this book, though, so maybe that's why I feel that way. But it explained absurdity to me more clearly, I would say. See, the interesting thing is, too, like when Camus was writing, you know, from the mid-30s onwards, absurdity had become a bigger and bigger idea in literature and art after World War One. Mm. You know, like the Dadaists after World War One, all their art and literature was all based on the absurd. And they never seemed to crystallise it like he did, to make it comprehensible in the myth of Sisyphus. So I suppose when you think about it, starting with a happy death and literally within four years writing the first draft of a myth of Sisyphus, that's an incredible time span to take one of the biggest ideas of his generation, of his era, and get it to a point where his explanation has lasted, wow, now 80 years. And it helps people to make sense of the absurd and deal with the absurd. It uh, is, I, I believe, a compulsory reading in like year twelve equivalent in in France. I mm, think it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, the myth of Sisyphus. Uh, sorry, uh, that might oh. be wrong. It might be uh, the stranger. The yeah, like even here in year twelve French, they read the stranger. I'm yep. like, 
come on, Australian teenagers giving them Camus to read at 16 or 17 living in the burbs in Australia. I'd never heard of the guy. Mm. And to be honest, for the first read, I thought his name was Albert Camus, yeah. to, yeah. be, to be 100% honest. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, and then it wasn't until I listened to a podcast and they said Albert Camus, and I'm like, well, that makes a lot more sense, seeing he was yeah. French to begin with. And he won a, a Nobel Prize for Literature as well. So yeah. A bloke named Albert Camus isn't winning a Nobel Prize for Literature. <laughs> he, he works part-time with the post office around the corner. Albert yeah. does. Yeah. But, yeah, I would never, never have come across... Never have come across this. I don't. I couldn't even tell you what the compulsory reading for me in year twelve was. No, it's, again, it wasn't relevant at the time. It's certainly not relevant now. So the fascinating thing with Camus is how many people keep reading Camus in their lives. So Bobby Kennedy, for example, after JFK died, always had a Camus novel or one of Camus' books in his briefcase for the rest of his life. It was the way he you know, he dealt with his brother having been killed, and plenty of other major political and you know sort of military figures in the modern world have been massive Camus fans and read Camus to make sense of the fact that there is this problem that being a human you know, makes sense the world on its own makes sense but the minute you put the two together that's when the absurdity kicks in mm. and you need to be reminded that that's okay mm. it's okay the world's absurd have a little bit of despair have a little bit of hope and be defiant and try and define yourself, you know, in the way you see value in. But, you know, I'd add the bit that doesn't get said directly in A Happy Death or in the myth of Sisyphus, and that is remember that if you're, you know, like most human beings, one of the best things you can do to maintain that is to let other people be themselves and spend time with the people who let you be yourself. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great place to leave it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that said, thank you very much, David, for joining us today. Thank you, Tim. And thank you very much, Luke. It's been a pleasure having you. No, thank you very much. It's given me a much greater insight to the book again. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. We'll be back soon. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.